a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On a warm spring day in 1980, 26-year-old Mark Hoffman stepped onto the Utah State University campus with a potentially earth-shaking discovery. Though it was a public university, USU was located firmly in the heart of Mormon country. Hoffman himself belonged to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as did the majority of students and faculty members. Hoffman was a regular feature in the Special Archives section of USU, which contains several historical documents relating to the LDS Church. So when Hoffman strolled into the library with a 17th-century tome under his arm, Archive Director A.J. Simmons wasn't surprised to see him. Hoffman had a knack for rooting out old letters and documents. But today's discovery was like none before it. Hoffman pulled out an old yellowed page, folded twice and sealed with tar-like glue. Together, the two men carefully cut open the paper with a scalpel. What they found inside was one of the most sought-after lost documents of the Mormon Church and a consummate fraud. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. This is our first episode on Mark Hoffman, one of America's most prolific and successful forgers. Hoffman made a fortune selling fraudulent historical documents, many of them to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week, we'll explore Hoffman's obsession with Mormon history, how he managed to gain the trust of the church's leaders, and how he fooled the country's best forgery experts. Next week, we'll delve into how Hoffman was finally exposed and how he tried to cover his tracks with murder.
Mark Hoffman was one of America's most successful forgers, selling dozens of fake historical documents during the early to mid-1980s. He allegedly made upwards of $2 million fabricating and selling everything from documents signed by the Founding Fathers to a lost poem by Emily Dickinson. Most infamously, however, Hoffman collected, forged, and sold documents involving the Mormon Church. Virtually overnight, Hoffman went from a college dropout to a welcome guest in the cloistered offices of church leaders. The First Presidency of Mormonism was thrilled by Hoffman's ability to produce long-lost documents which supported the church's official narrative of its history and they trembled at the power Hoffman had to expose their darkest secrets. At his height, Hoffman controlled the history of a church of over four million members. And once that control began to slip away, he resorted to desperate measures in an attempt to get it back. Mark Hoffman was born on December 7, 1954 in Salt Lake City, Utah. His family belonged to the LDS Church, and Hoffman was raised Mormon. Mormonism was founded by farmer and treasure hunter Joseph Smith in New York in 1830. Its largest denomination is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the LDS Church, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hoffman's parents were strict adherents to the faith and brought up their son to be an obedient, upright Mormon. They also doted on him as a little genius who had an enthusiasm for experimentation from a young age. As such, magic became one of young Hoffman's earliest passions. As a child, he performed illusions for family and friends. At the time, these tricks were just a bit of innocent fun. Mr. and Mrs. Hoffman had no idea that their son would become a professional deceiver one of the most prolific scammers in American history. In addition to magic, young Hoffman was fascinated by fire and explosives. Hoffman once attempted a fiery experiment with alcohol and glycerine and nearly burned his house down. Though potentially catastrophic, this kind of firebug behavior is actually quite common in kids Hoffman's age. According to the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, interest in fire is nearly universal in children, and fire setting is often due to curiosity in this age group. That curiosity got Hoffman into plenty of trouble. While in junior high school, Another experiment with fire put young Hoffman in the hospital for skin grafts. While recovering from his injuries, he began a coin collection, starting from rolls his mother brought him. Hoffman soon accumulated a number of valuable coins. After he was released from the hospital, Hoffman sold one of his valuable coins to a classmate, a rare double-headed buffalo nickel. But when the classmate took the coin home, he opened its plastic case and found that the coin was just an ordinary nickel. The image of a buffalo had merely been etched onto the inside of the case. His deception exposed, Hoffman returned the classmate's money. Though clever, it was a lazy swindle. It spoke to Hoffman's overall work ethic. 
he put even less effort into his studies. His high school grades were poor, and he showed no ambition to improve. Hoffman graduated from high school in 1973 in the bottom third of his class. As is the LDS custom, Hoffman then volunteered to go on a mission. The young Mormon traveled to southern England, where he took up collecting old books, including a Cambridge Bible and an early edition of the Book of Mormon. His companion during their missionary work noted that Hoffman seemed to buy any book which contained the word Mormon in the title. Far from home and the watchful eye of his father, Hoffman also bought books with an anti-Mormon slant, which planted seeds of doubt about his faith. In 1976, 21-year-old Hoffman completed his mission and returned to Utah. He enrolled in Utah State University, 90 miles north of Salt Lake City. There, Hoffman applied himself to his studies in a way he never had during high school. He also developed a keen interest in Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church. After years of independent study, Hoffman believed Smith was a fraud, but he was fascinated by the Prophet's ability to attract followers and create history. According to Linda Silito and Alan Roberts, authors of Salamander, the Mormon forgery murders, Hoffman admired Joseph Smith because he was a deceiver, the ultimate con artist. Many, if not most, confidence tricksters are motivated by money. Hoffman's fraud, however, seemed driven by a desire to emulate Joseph Smith, or at least his perception of the man. Hoffman may not have had the charisma of the founding prophet, but he could still find a way to control the history of the church and deceive millions. In the meantime, Hoffman had more worldly concerns. In 1977, Hoffman became engaged to another USU student, who we'll call Amy. To afford the engagement ring, which he told Amy had cost him $10,000, he bought and sold coins, which was his main source of income at the time. Despite the engagement, their relationship was strained. He discouraged Amy from singing at church meetings. According to authors Silito and Roberts, Hoffman told her he had chosen her for her looks with the intention of working on her personality. Still, Hoffman felt closer to Amy than to his family. He confided in her his deepest secret. He no longer believed in Mormonism. Amy urged him to move away from Utah to get some distance between them and the church, but Hoffman insisted on staying. He no longer believed in Mormonism, but he was still fascinated by it. To cultivate that interest, Hoffman spent most of his spare time in the special collections area of the university library. There, he researched LDS history and early Mormon coins. He also made friends with the university's special collections director, A.J. Simmons, who was not Mormon, but shared Hoffman's interest in the church's history. The two spent many hours discussing the history of the church in Simmons' university office. During one of these sessions, their conversation turned to a TV miniseries based on a novel titled The Word by Irving Wallace. 
The plot focused on a man who fabricates a new gospel of the New Testament. While discussing it, Simmons joked about selling religious forgeries to Brigham Young University. Hoffman thought it was a very good joke. But things at home were no laughing matter. Hoffman's relationship with Amy was falling apart. They broke off their engagement but continued seeing each other. Around that time, Amy felt that Hoffman was becoming more secretive. He would disappear for long stretches of time, leave town, miss appointments, fail to return her calls, and lie about where he'd been or what he was doing. She was right to be suspicious. In 1978, Hoffman began dating Dory Olds, a student at USU. At first, he told Amy that Dory was just a friend of his. Yet, Hoffman continued to date both Amy and Dory, even as Hoffman and Dory made plans to marry. Finally, Hoffman sat Amy down and told her he would be marrying Dory, and that was the end of it. He also planned to drop out of college and dedicate his life to coins and church documents. According to Linda Silito and Alan Roberts' book on Hoffman's Salamander, he told Amy, I have to remain a member of the church in good standing so people will trust me and I can have access to what I need. But I can make good money at this, and eventually the documents I find are going to show people that they believe in a fairy tale. It seems Hoffman was intent on taking down the Mormon church, a quest that wouldn't end in happily ever after for anyone involved. Coming up, Mark Hoffman launches his forgery career, sending shockwaves through the LDS church. Now, back to the story. 24-year-old Mark Hoffman had expressed a desire to expose the Mormon church's secrets to the world. He set aside his faith and his first fiancée. Instead, Hoffman married Dory Olds in September 1979 in the Salt Lake Temple. They moved into an apartment in Logan, where until recently, Hoffman had attended college. A month after his nuptials, Hoffman brought his friend and USU archivist A.J. Simmons something interesting. It was a temple ritual written in letter form dating back to 1912. The text was a second anointing blessing, a secret rite which could only be performed by the president of the church. Hoffman took out a copy of No Man Knows My History, Fawn Brody's 1945 biography of Joseph Smith. In Mormon circles, the book is considered scandalous for being among the first to seriously undermine the church's official narrative and Smith's character. But that controversy wasn't why Hoffman brought the book. He showed Simmons a footnote from the biography which explained that the second anointing blessing had never been described in writing. Yet now, Hoffman appeared to have that blessing in print, a long-lost secret document which no one was supposed to ever see. 
Simmons paid $60 for the text and promised Hoffman that he wouldn't reveal where he'd gotten it from. $60 might not have seemed like much for a long-lost document, but for Hoffman, the price was irrelevant. This was a test, a trial run, to see if his forgeries could pass for the real thing. And Simmons fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. At first, Simmons was elated to have the text, but soon realized that sharing it would damage his standing at the university. He was a non-Mormon, but most of his colleagues and superiors were of the faith. Not wanting to ruffle any feathers, he put the blessing away and forgot about it. Soon, Hoffman was back, this time with a letter written by the founder of Mormonism himself, Joseph Smith. The letter suggested that Smith was in a polygamous relationship with two teenage sisters while he was their legal guardian. It was already common knowledge that Smith was a polygamist. In fact, he'd had upwards of 30 wives, some of whom were as young as 14. But this wasn't a side of the prophet that the church cared to promote, and a letter in Smith's own hand admitting to a relationship with teenage girls would certainly have been embarrassing. Hoffman wanted $125 for the letter. Simmons, however, was suspicious of its authenticity. To his expert eyes, it didn't read like Smith. Plus, the paper it was written on wasn't old enough. Simmons didn't accuse Hoffman of being responsible for the forgery. Rather, he assumed it was a very good fake, which his over-eager friend had happened upon. Hoffman took the letter back and conceded that Simmons might be correct. Of course, he knew for a fact that the letter was phony, having forged it himself. It seemed like he would need to work harder if he was going to pass off his documents as the real deal. A few months later, in April of 1980, Hoffman told Simmons he had found something truly extraordinary. He brought a 17th century Cambridge Bible into the archivist's office. From between the book's pages, Hoffman produced a sheet of old yellowed paper, folded twice and sealed with tar-like glue. Hoffman said he was worried that if he tried to pull open the sheet, the paper would rip and be destroyed. But the writing on the exposed sides of the paper was more than enough to catch his attention. On one side, markings which looked like odd hieroglyphics. On the other side, Joseph Smith's signature. Hoffman claimed this had the potential to be a momentous find, because according to the official LDS history, sometime in the 1820s, Joseph Smith had been guided by an angel to a set of golden plates hidden near his family farm in upstate New York. The plates contained passages written in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, just like the writing on Hoffman's mysterious piece of paper. Smith had translated the plates and then produced the Book of Mormon, the sacred text of Mormonism. While Smith was in the process of dictating the Book of Mormon, a friend named Martin Harris took a copy of Smith's hieroglyphics to Charles Anthon, a professor at Columbia College for verification. When Harris returned, 
he proclaimed that Smith's hieroglyphics had been found authentic. As proof of his faith in Smith, he sold his farm to pay for the publication of the Book of Mormon. Professor Anthon, however, swore in an affidavit that he had never authenticated the hieroglyphic translation, which he described as confused nonsense. The copy of Smith's translation which Harris had brought to the Columbia professor was called the Anthon Transcript, and it became one of the most sought-after lost documents of the Mormon Church. Perhaps this scrap of paper was part of the transcript. Thrilled at the possibility that he was on the verge of a major discovery, Simmons raised a scalpel and asked Hoffman's permission to cut open the paper. Hoffman agreed. Inside was an inscription and a signature from Joseph Smith confirming the paper to be the lost Anthon transcript. What Simmons and Hoffman had before them was evidence supporting the LDS Church's official version of its history. For a Mormon faithful, it was a bit like finding proof of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Hoffman seemed just as surprised and excited as Simmons was. The archivist offered Hoffman $5,000 for the transcript. But Hoffman demurred. He didn't say it, but clearly he felt he could get more for the find. In order to do that, he needed to have the document authenticated. To that end, Hoffman took the transcript to a religious instructor on campus for appraisal. The instructor studied the transcript, then called for backup, telephoning Dean Jesse, a church historian in Salt Lake City. Jesse was a bit of an expert on Joseph Smith. He rose to prominence by exposing a fraudulent attempt to prove that Smith had not written the Book of Mormon. If anyone could determine whether the transcript was real, it was him. Hoffman showed the transcript to Jesse, who examined it thoroughly. Jesse found that the paper was brittle with age. The old ink had burned through the page and Joseph Smith's signature appeared authentic. Even the transcript's misspellings were consistent with Smith's other writings. Jesse was convinced. The transcript was authentic. A few days later, Hoffman and Jesse then took the transcript to Leonard Arrington, the appointed church historian. He was in charge of gathering and preserving records of the faith. Arrington, in turn, escalated the transcript to the First Presidency, the governing body of the Mormon Church. President of the church, Spencer Kimball, was so eager to authenticate the document that he cancelled a meeting with the president of U.S. Steel to clear time for Hoffman. Hoffman showed the transcript to Kimball and his two counselors, the church's governing triumvirate. They received it with enthusiasm and asked Hoffman if he could hand the document over to the church's archivist to test the ink and paper. According to Kimball, the authentication process could take a year or two. Hoffman agreed. In return, Hoffman received old Mormon coins and a first edition of the Book of Mormon, together worth about $20,000. Church news reports implied that Hoffman had made a donation, but neglected to mention the terms of the exchange. 
It was Hoffman's preference to accept trades in valuable coins and documents instead of hard cash. Partly this was due to Hoffman's love for such objects, but getting his hands on rare documents also helped him produce yet more elaborate forgeries. To fully understand how powerful these forgeries were, it's critical to note the singular importance of history and historical documents to the Mormon faith. Letters, contracts, articles, court proceedings, and other documents which support the church's version of its history are known as faith-promoting. According to reporter Robert Jones, acquiring a credible account of its divine origins has become the church's great obsession and its peculiar vulnerability. The relative newness of Mormonism, it was founded in 1830, goes a long way to explaining the church's unique interest in history. Far more documents from the time of the faith's founding still exist today compared to the world's other major religions. Therefore, historical documents can be used to both support the church's official version of events and to undermine it. In the words of the 10th LDS president, Joseph Fielding Smith, Mormonism, as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground. The church, then, is uniquely eager to find, purchase, and embrace documents which corroborates Joseph Smith's story, and just as eager to bury anything which casts doubts on that version of events. LDS officials were deeply motivated to protect the image of the church because that meant protecting the faith. According to psychologist Louis Leon Thurston, if we have nothing personally at stake in a dispute between people who are strangers to us, we are remarkably intelligent about weighing the evidence and in reaching a rational conclusion. But the closer it comes to the maintenance of our own selves, the more difficult it becomes to be rational and intelligent. Few things are more personal and more important to a sense of individual identity than religious beliefs. For the leaders of the church, the very meaning of their lives was dependent on their faith, a faith which, paradoxically, sought out empirical evidence while simultaneously turning a blind eye toward uncomfortable facts. In this context, Hoffman's faith-promoting discovery was universally celebrated. Immediately after Hoffman brought the Anthon transcript to the First Presidency, he became famous in the Mormon community. The church's television network interviewed Hoffman and put together a documentary on the Anthon transcript. An article in Ensign, the official magazine of the church, quoted Hoffman as saying that he was delighted to have had a part in shedding more light on the church's past. Besides the fame and prestige that accompanied his discovery, Hoffman also found that he was admitted into the church's own archives. Little did officials know that in giving Hoffman this kind of access, they were letting a fox into the henhouse. 
1981, 26-year-old Hoffman changed tack from producing faith-promoting artifacts to documents that were anything but. With his next move, he escalated his scam from simple forgery to what was, in essence, extortion. Hoffman came forward with a blessing that Joseph Smith Sr., the prophet's father, had given to his grandson, Joseph Smith III. The blessing named Joseph III as successor to the presidency of the high priesthood. This was in stark contrast to mainstream LDS tradition, which passed the mantle of leadership from presiding apostle to presiding apostle, rather than from father to son or grandson. The document Hoffman had discovered, if made public, could threaten the authority of the First Presidency. It would also confirm the beliefs of the reorganized Latter-day Saints Mormon denomination. Hoffman traded the blessing to the church for $20,000 in early Mormon coins and currency. As before, officials quietly sealed it away. And once Hoffman realized he could successfully blackmail the Mormon church, he saw a clear path toward taking them down once and for all. Coming up, we'll explore how Hoffman caused one of the worst scandals in the history of the LDS church. Now, back to the story. By the early 1980s, Mark Hoffman had established a reputation as a brilliant appropriator of Mormon historical artifacts. Depending on their content, his discoveries were met with enthusiasm or fear. He had already traded several historically significant documents to church officials, some of which they were all too eager to quietly seal away. Soon, more blackmail transactions followed. In 1981, Hoffman sold sets of extremely rare handwritten church currency for a total of $32,000. This was, of course, forged. He then produced a letter written by Lucy Mack Smith, the prophet's mother, detailing Joseph Smith's translation of the gold plates. The letter contained descriptions of the translation which were not included in the Book of Mormon, it appeared to be part of the book's 116 lost pages. As the story goes, during the writing of the book, a disciple traveled with the pages to another town, where they were lost and never seen again. They are perhaps the lost ark of Mormon historical documents. This letter in particular would be the oldest known Mormon document. In 1982, Hoffman traded the Lucy Mack Smith letter to Brent Ashworth, a Mormon bishop, attorney, and avid collector. In exchange, Hoffman received an original copy of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, a Benjamin Franklin letter, an 1857 John Brown letter, an Andrew Jackson letter, a book which had belonged to Joseph Smith's grandfather, and a history inscribed by an early president of the church. All told, the collection was worth about $33,000. In exchange, with Hoffman's approval, Ashworth passed off the Lucy Mack Smith letter as his own. 
He and Hoffman formed an informal partnership. Hoffman brought him his discoveries, and Ashworth shared them with the world. Later, Ashworth admitted that his primary motivation for working with Hoffman was to become famous. Hoffman, meanwhile, generally kept a low profile. He enjoyed being photographed with church elders and seeing his name in the paper, but he didn't brag about his discoveries. He remains the quiet, slightly withdrawn, easygoing guy he'd always been. Even with the windfall Hoffman made from his sales, he remained outwardly humble. He continued to drive an old, rundown pickup truck. He wore clothes until they became truly tattered. In college, he was known to use wire to keep his broken briefcase shut. Occasionally, he made sales late in the evening while wearing a threadbare undershirt. His one extravagance was a new VCR tape player. He often screened recordings of his various church press conferences to friends. Soon, however, church officials were less inclined to be caught on film standing next to Mark Hoffman, because not all of the documents Hoffman produced promoted the faith. About six months after the Lucy Max Smith letter, Hoffman brought a document straight to one of the three members of the First Presidency. The letter was written by Joseph Smith and recommended ways to trick magical spirits, which were thought to guard 19th-century treasure sites. It is generally acknowledged that before he established the church, Smith engaged in treasure hunting, often accompanied by the use of magical rites. Naturally, this is not a side of Joseph Smith the church cares to emphasize. Hoffman was paid $15,000 for the letter, which, like the Joseph Smith senior blessing, was promptly sealed away without further comment. The most damning and infamous document Hoffman produced, however, was yet to come. In 1983, 28-year-old Hoffman produced what would become known as the Salamander Letter. In it, a close friend and early follower of Joseph Smith's wrote about how the prophet described the discovery of the golden plates. In the church's official narrative, an angel named Moroni led Smith to the plates. But in this letter, Smith described hunting for gold treasure that was protected by an enchanted white salamander. In the letter, Smith writes, the next morning, the spirit transfigured himself from a white salamander in the bottom of the hole and struck me three times and held the treasure and would not let me have it. In other words, Mormonism's founding story was not of a glorious messenger of God guiding the pious young Smith toward divine revelation. Rather, it was the story of a treasure hunter fighting with a slimy amphibian in order to get rich. Hoffman had one of his business partners take this damning evidence to Gordon Hinckley, one of the three members of the First Presidency. In return, the partner asked for a rare Mormon gold coin worth about $140,000. Hinckley declined. Hoffman then asked for an original Mormon Book of Commandments worth about $40,000. Hingley said he wasn't sure if he really wanted the letter. 
Hoffman's partner left the meeting stunned. Both men had thought for sure the church would pay them off. Perhaps the church didn't think the letter would produce much of a fervor. Hoffman decided that he would prove them wrong. He took the salamander letter to Salt Lake City businessman Stephen Christensen, who purchased it for $40,000. Rumors quickly circulated about the contents of the letter, partly because Hoffman himself tipped off reporters. In March 1984, Christensen confirmed that he owned the letter. It became a tremendous news story in the Mormon community and a deeply embarrassing one at that. According to reporter Robert Jones, for the church, the situation became the incarnation of all its fears. People who knew little about Mormonism were being told that a salamander, not an angel of God, had been keeper of the gold plates. The church's closely guarded history had been turned into something comic and humiliating. When Ashworth asked Hoffman what he thought the church should do about the letter and the firestorm it was kicking up, Hoffman casually replied that they should say the letter was a forgery. But by this point, Hoffman was so trusted, the idea that his documents could be forgeries was nearly inconceivable. Out of the entire Mormon church, only a handful of people doubted his discoveries. His critics wondered how one man had managed to uncover so many remarkable documents in so short a time far more than anyone else in the span of the church's history. But Hoffman remained nonchalant about such skepticism. He insisted that he just worked harder than anyone else, going door to door in small Utah towns and traveling around the country to hunt down the thinnest of leads. In his own words, as far as I know, I am the only person on earth who is actively pursuing Mormon documents on a full-time basis. Hoffman could also be vague about where certain sales came from, often saying that he promised not to reveal his source's identity. When pressed, he'd create a convincing paper trail of signed affidavits to show where and when he'd made a sale. Hoffman's self-assuredness and supporting documents certainly helped inspire confidence, and his forgeries held up surprisingly well to investigation on their own merit. Many experts inside and outside the church studied his documents and proclaimed them to be authentic. Hoffman's letters were scrutinized by experts in the handwriting of early Mormon figures. Other documents endured more exacting tests and were not found wanting. The Anthem transcript was taken to Brigham Young University and examined with ultraviolet and infrared light. No evidence of forgery was found. As for the white salamander letter, Christensen submitted it to Kenneth Rendell, an expert in historical documents. Rendell had famously helped expose the so-called Hitler diaries as a fake. After examining the salamander letter's paper, ink, and handwriting, Rendell said that he could find no evidence of forgery. Much later, after the fraud was exposed, Rendell said of Hoffman, he was able to get away with it because nobody thought he was capable of it. 
He was shy. He was extremely tentative about the documents he brought you, saying he wasn't sure whether they were genuine or not. His quiet deception caused quite a stir. The official narrative, which had been carefully constructed over decades, was being questioned as never before. The church was becoming an object of ridicule to non-believers, while many of its members were forced to confront their own beliefs. In other words, as Robert Jones wrote in the Los Angeles Times, the church was losing its hold over the telling of Mormon history. In a religion so dedicated to its history, this was an existential threat. Hoffman, meanwhile, had reached the peak of his influence, fame, and fortune, while his relationship with the church became ever more strained. He carried a certain confidence that came with completely rocking one of the world's major religions. More than the money, gaining this level of power was likely Hoffman's primary motivation for producing the forgeries. Hoffman was riding high on this power, traveling around the country, visiting rare book dealers, attending auctions, staying in luxury hotels, and leaving $100 tips in restaurants. A friend of Hoffman's said that he once accompanied Hoffman on a trip to New York, where they strolled down a street in Manhattan with $16,000 of Hoffman's cash. And Hoffman, was still on the verge of his greatest triumph, the recovery of the 116 lost pages, the holy grail of Mormon historical documents. Little did he know, he was hurtling toward ruin, exposure as a fraud, and murder. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Mark Hoffman's story. We'll follow the forger as he attempts to cover up his counterfeits and the investigation that brought his crimes to light. For more information on Mark Hoffman, amongst the many sources we used, we found Salamander, the story of the Mormon forgery murders by Linda Silito and Alan Roberts, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parkour Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>